So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick it up and I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 as we continue the arguments that Paul is making again, uh, pointing out that uh, everyone is, is stands for a guy without excuse and explaining the, the plight and the situation that the individual man, as well as mankind in general, find themselves in. And as we continue to work our way through the all the many truths that will come out in Romans. Romans is a great companion book to the first 10 chapters of Genesis. Remember, that, as we've mentioned before, that the first 10 chapters of Genesis gives to us uh, what's called our meta-narrative. That is a, a story. It's a true story. It's kind of an overarching story that uh, I guess you would say that it covers the entire, all of history, covers the entire planet uh, uh, Earth, and it helps us to understand why things are the way they are. It gives us the proper perspective. This meta narrative explains where we have come from, what we are about, and what has gone wrong. What has gone wrong with us, what has gone wrong with society, what has gone wrong in the planet. Uh, it helps us to understand God's purposes for us and for the animal kingdom and for the plant kingdom and, and for the planet. It helps us to understand what's going on supernaturally with Satan and, and angels and the good angels and helps us to understand God's plan for, for man. Helps us to understand the place of marriage and the family uh, within this framework that God has given us. It helps us to understand where really everything has come from and who everyone is dependent upon. Who are who it is that we are beholding to, which is God. It also helps us to understand who's in charge of all these things, that there is no such thing as luck, that God truly is in charge of all things. And yet, along with that, with, with God being sovereign, we also have the ability, because he's created us with this ability, uh, to have freedom to make choices, to make very real choices, uh, to, to live out our lives uh, the way that we want to. Uh, and, and yet we are to do so remembering and understanding what it is that God has said, commanded, and what he's given to us. Then in Romans, what Romans does is really expand on what's gone wrong. It helps us to understand the, the degree of, or the depth of the problems that we have. That when Adam and Eve sinned back in the book of Genesis, that it wasn't some minor little glitch, uh, you know, in, in history. That it was a, a major catastrophic and traumatic event that affected all of creation, every single aspect of it, and in particular, affected us. And so as we understand that, it helps us to see then and to understand why it is we disagree with other people, why we argue with people, why we become angry, why there are so many different types of sin in the world why it is that we are prone to addictions, why it is we are prone to become angry first, why it is that we are prone to think the worst of other people, why it is that we are so selfish, why it is that we are in need of salvation. It also explains uh, God's answer to this very serious situation, which is the gospel. But, but it also helps us to understand why we have such a hard time believing that, why we have such a hard time understanding that. Why we have a hard time understanding really the depths and the strength and the power and the true devastation of sin. Uh, so Romans, I believe, gives to us a very solid, thick foundation for understanding ourselves psychologically. I use psychologically in the sense of what the word actually means, which is, uh, if you break it down, uh, it is a word which means the study of the soul. What, what, is, what is truly wrong with us? Why do we have so many doubts? Why do we have so many fears, founded and unfounded? Why do we have so much weakness in the world? It's all because of sin. Why does we have such a hard time thinking correctly? That's that's in the Bible as well, in the book of Romans. So Romans really is a, a fantastic companion. Not that it's the only one, but it's, but I think it's a great companion to helping us to really get a good handle on the meta-narrative that explains our plight 
and the plight of mankind in general. So Romans chapter 3, beginning again in verse 5, uh, we'll continue to read, and it reads this way. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now remember what Paul is doing here is Paul is playing the part of, a, of the antagonist. It's, it's like someone who plays themselves in chess. You take both sides and you try and the win on both sides. And Paul is doing that so that he is forced to, because he wants to, he wants to be forced to answer the difficult questions as somebody would try to analyze and critique the information that's coming from God about the gospel. So he spent some time talking about the fact that our sin can never exceed the grace of God and that our sin reveals God's goodness and grace because he forgives us. And so the question then is, if our unrighteousness, if our disobedience to God gives an opportunity to put a spotlight on God's righteousness, he says, what should we say to that? And here's the questions. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Now he says, I speak as a man. What he means by that there is... Uh, he is he's speaking as the antagonist, not one who believes in God. Uh, he's just kind of evaluating as a secular philosopher would. would, And says, wait a minute now, if you're saying this, then, it's, then it has to be this and this. And so um, he's, he's, he's saying there that, that this human philosopher is going to say that God is unjust in doing this because God is the one who's benefiting in this sense from our sin. That's the argument he's making. And of course he says, certainly not. Verse 6, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Why not say, let us do evil, that good may come. As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So again, it is like they, these people who are dissecting the Christian faith, they are saying that if our, again, unrighteousness commends or put a spot puts a spotlight on the righteousness of God then how then could we conclude somehow that God is unrighteous he is evil if he takes reprisals or vengeance on us so again their argument is this is that if the failure of the Jews puts God's justice into greater relief if that very failure has in a way contributed to God's majesty and his glory and his greatness, on what grounds does God punish them for what they've done? So again, they're, they're accusing Paul of trying to prove that the Jews are going to be punished as the Gentiles are going to be punished. But how can God punish people who are magnifying his righteousness, his grace, and his glory? Somehow, that seems to be unfair. And for those who've been believers for a long time, they would probably immediately grasp really the foolishness and the nastiness of this kind of argument. But Paul is trying to be honest and and he doesn't want to be accused of ignoring certain glaring issues. So again, as I mentioned, the phrase, I speak as a man, Paul is just saying that's the way that the natural man argues. It's kind of like this. Uh, you, you may have watched a movie or seen a novel where you have a master criminal and uh, he's on a he's on a crime spree whether he's a serial killer or a serial bank robber or whatever it happens to be. And so there's a lead detective in, in the story. There's always a lead detective. And that lead detective is becoming famous because this, this criminal and, this, and these crimes are always on the front page of the news or always you know, leading the way on the Internet. And so let's say that this criminal then, he is having a discussion. He's, he's, he has called this detective. And so he tells the detective, look, I've made you famous. So the implication there is, is that the detective is somehow indebted to the criminal. So we're kind of familiar with hearing that kind of logic or that kind of reasoning being used. It's absurd and ridiculous, uh, but that is how some individuals think. So again, this kind of thing happens today uh, to us, if you think about it. Um, You give the gospel to explain the gospel to some individual. Uh, and so those who are listening to you, they may try to catch you on every word you say. They say, wait a minute now. Well, if it's this, then why that? Uh, you say the wages of sin is death. 
And so they might come back and say, oh, so you're saying everyone deserves to die. Even the three and the four-year-old kid down the street. Are you saying babies deserve to die? Now, this is a tactic that people use. And the main reason, especially if you're talking to an individual about the gospel, the main reason that they bring up these types of things is not because they are intellectually curious about these issues. It's possible that one or two individuals may actually want to have real answers to those questions. But normally the the goal is to throw you off and change the subject because right now you're putting a spotlight on them, their need. When you say the, the wages of sin is death, that means they've sinned, they deserve a paycheck from God, they deserve to die. Man doesn't want to talk, he doesn't want to talk about that, he doesn't want to think about that. So he starts throwing out these questions. Now these questions now, now they do have answers. God's not afraid of these questions. And there are answers. Sometimes the answers may be complicated. They're not simplistic. We can't give two sentences and bingo, we've answered them. Some of them are quite involved. But most of the time, if not always, it's like a smokescreen. So what you can do at times when you talk to individuals, you can tell them, you know, that's a great question. Let's write that down and I'll get back to that later. That way you don't allow them to derail you from what you're doing, which is to get them to consider the gospel, to get them to understand that they are accountable to God as well. Regardless of what the answers are to those questions, what you're giving them is truth, and they need to hear that. So, but again, this is the same kind of thing. Uh, that you know, Again, with Paul playing the part of the antagonist, that's what he's doing. He's taking on the part of a humanistic philosopher, a humanistic man who doesn't believe, and he's trying to poke holes uh, in it. So if you say, well, for all have sinned, so then they'll say, wait a minute, so have babies sinned? Has Mother Teresa sinned? Uh, is she just like a child molester? You see, they, they take what you say to its absurdity. And as I said again, they may not want the real answers. There are very real answers to these things. Some of them are, are tough answers. But again, the goal is to, is to throw you off. You may explain to them that Christ is the way, that he is the truth. And so they're saying, oh, so now you're saying the whole world's going to hell. And you're the only one with truth. Are you the only one who's right? And so now they're accusing you of arrogance and, um, again, trying to throw you off. Again, you can say, you know, I understand exactly why you think that way. And it can appear that that's what I'm saying. It's not. We can get into more detail later, and then you want to continue. Again, if you think about it, if we're going to be honest about most religions, most religions do teach that what they are teaching is the truth. Some people try to say that, well, of course religions say they have the truth, but they're all just really different forms of the truth, and they're all going to end up in the same place. Well, that's actually untrue, because they do say things that contradict each other. In other words, what one religion says is truth actually contradicts what another religion says. It's not like there's a missing element there and they kind of come together and dovetail. They don't. They are in opposition to each other. So that is untrue. On the other hand, it is true in a sense that all religions do end up in the same place and that is separated from God forever. All of them except for the gospel which is being given to us by God himself. So it's not a religion that man has made up. It's the truth that God has given us. So all these religions really, in one sense, are going to end up all in the same place. And they are going to get there, I guess, by different paths, but that place is hell. And that's not a very popular thing in our day and age. People don't like the absoluteness of truth or the singularity of truth and what that means. But that's what's going on here. So again, the the goal is to uh, throw you off. If you were to say, everyone is born a sinner, they say, well, then if that's the case, I can't help myself. It's not my fault. I'm only living the way I'm programmed. Well, it may seem that way, but that's not what you've said. That's not what you've communicated. Now, this does point out one thing to us that's important, that is this. Even though we don't want to become derailed by these questions, we do want to make sure that when we are explaining the Bible, and maybe more so when we're explaining the gospel, that we want that we want to make sure that we're clear. We want to make sure that we're actually explaining things because it's very easy for us to assume that they know what we're talking about. 
that you may be talking to an individual and you say, hey, look, man, everyone has sinned and everyone deserves to die and go to hell. Well, if you're saying that to another Christian, they know exactly what you're talking about. And you would be surprised to know how many non-believers have no clue what you're saying. When you say everybody sinned, they actually may be thinking, well, I know lots of people who haven't sinned. Because in their mind, they may think that a sin is only certain things. That it's murder, robbing a bank, raping someone. You know, they think that is sin and all the other things are just mistakes. They may think that way. Some may think that none of those things are sins. They, uh, uh, some, some may think that um, we really are programmed and that it's not our fault. It's, you know, it's because of our genetics. And, that, and that's a very popular growing ideology uh, and belief in our society is that somehow it's because of our genes. It's not at all. And we can have a long discussion about that. But again, remember one of the basic truths of the scripture is that when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, no matter where you look, God always holds each individual man, every individual man, 100% accountable and responsible for what they do. Now, God does it, always does it fairly. He always does it justly. But He always holds the individual accountable. So the moment an individual begins to say that, well, I have a genetic predisposition to this or that, They've misunderstood what that means. To have a, for example, to have a genetic predisposition to to alcoholism doesn't mean that you can't help yourself and you become an alcoholic. doesn't mean that. Many individuals may have a predisposition to being an alcoholic and they don't drink. It does mean that if you begin to drink, it will be easier. It will feel more overwhelming to you. But it never forces you to become an alcoholic. Genetics, don't, they don't work that way. And so, again, they're trying to escape responsibility for, for what they've done. But the Bible does not allow for that. So again, what we, go, what we have here back in Romans is, if my sin, as great as it may be, reveals how great God is when He forgives me, my sin then makes God look good. So how is it possible then that He would then punish me for helping Him? That's kind of what the question is. So really, it's, it is an impossible suggestion. And what Paul throws out there is, if, if that conclusion is true, then how would God judge the world? And the scripture makes it clear that God is going to judge the world. So the Jews and many others believe that in the end, God will judge the wor- world. And that there will be a final judgment. Even, even an individual who throws that out believes that there are some, at least some people who deserve to be judged by God and punished for what they've done because their atrocities are so great. If you just if you just read the history of many dictators through the centuries, many of them are responsible for, for the deaths of literally millions of people. Cold-blooded murder on a massive scale. And most people believe that those individuals should be judged for what they've done held accountable for what they've done. Well, who's going to do that? And if God is evil, uh, as it is suggested here by this argument, then, then who's, who's going to judge him? How can he judge? And so it's an impossible thing, and it, it doesn't really hold any water. So, of course, uh, the Jewish person, and many people, uh, people today do, again, believe that, the, that uh, judgment, um, uh, that, that they would be okay. Most of us believe that, most non-believers believe that when there's a judgment, I'm going to be fine. Because I'm not as bad as other people. And so again, we misunderstand what the Bible teaches and says about sin and about accountability. In fact, some people believe they won't even be judged because we're not really evil. Other people are evil. I'm not evil. I'm a little mischievous. I'm a little bad, but I'm not evil. And so again, they they misunderstand God. So that's why it's important for us to go back. What does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible say is true? What is truth? Because it is not left up to the individual to determine what is actually true. That's why we're in such great danger today when we, when we allow others to think. And we even, may even join in uh, with others who say that truth is relative. Or that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Or that absolute truth cannot be known. In, in each of those scenarios, we would make God 
either evil or unfair or unjust. Those are lame excuses as we grope in the darkness trying to find a way to escape responsibility for what we have done and said and thought. And so we need to make sure that we that we as believers don't fall in. So again, what is said in science, what is said in psychology, all of these things must come under the lens of scripture. Just because a scientist says something doesn't make it true. Just because a doctor says something doesn't make it true. Now, it doesn't make it false either. We, we have to determine if things are true or not true. We put a certain amount of trust in scientists and doctors and, and assume certain things. And some of those assumptions are, are okay. But when it comes to the most important things in life, who we are, what is our responsibility here, what is the meaning of life, is there life after death, is there going to be a judgment, all those types of things. You don't leave that up to the scientist or a doctor just to kind of say whatever they think uh, is on their mind. We want to discover what the truth is. So the conclusion of the verse, which is verse 8, conclusion of the section, he says, and why not say, because in other words, if, if this antagonistic argument is true, then why don't we just say, let's do evil that good may come. And then Paul adds, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. So he's saying some are already accusing us of saying that. And so if we are saying that, and that's true, then the condemning us would be just. Now that's not true, but that's the argument that Paul is making. And so that would then mean that God could not judge at all, ever. So why would you teach that God would judge the world in righteousness when you are concluding, let us do evil that good may come. If what they are arguing is true, then even the Gentiles cannot be judged. And the Jews believed that the Gentiles would definitely be judged because they saw them as being evil. Just like we, you know, we may think that as Americans, we're still pretty good, but we see others as being evil. You know, we see perhaps what the Russians are doing, or maybe what certain Islamic states and what the Muslims are doing, you know, the radicals. We see that as being evil. And so we believe that will be judged by God, but somehow we're going to get off the hook. Uh, and so that's kind of what's going on. So if all um, so if all this is right, then there will be no judgment. The murderer of your sister's baby cannot be punished. The child molester in California cannot be punished. Nobody can be punished. I really don't know of any individual in the world who thinks that that would be right or just in any way. There's always someone we think that deserves justice and punishment. Even your worst criminals in prison who are guilty and even admit their guilt believe that there are people who should be judged for what they've done. So you can't have it both ways. We have to be logically consistent. If you believe that God is like us and that he's fickle, then you have one thing. That God will only judge on a whim, will only judge those who are really evil. And of course, who decides who is really evil? What is the criteria? In other words, that raises more questions that would need to be answered. So the world is full of those who will raise objections. Uh, and those objections really are numerous. I mean, we can make a long list of those things. But So don't think that today is any different than the days of Paul. Uh, it's pretty much the same in that sense. So Paul had to argue constantly. When you read uh, about his sermons and you read his letters, you can tell that Paul was misunderstood. There's always someone trying to trip him up. So don't be discouraged if you notice uh, the world or your friends or your neighbors are always looking for a loophole or trying to find fault with what you believe. It's really nothing more than the world acting like the world. And, and they're just trying to find a way to, to, to get themselves off the hook. That, that's what our friends are doing. Uh, remember, Jesus says that the world hates him. And they hate things that pertain to God. Romans 1 says that the, the natural state of man is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so our unbelieving friends and those that we share the gospel with, that's what they're going to do. That's the natural inclination that they have. So we have to expect that. And so these kind of ridiculous arguments that are going to be thrown up in our face, these smoke screens that people use, 
It's just man, again, trying to find a way to get out from under the thumb of God and, and not be held accountable. So, again, even though we, we try to be clear, and we always should try to be clear, we will at times, we will be genuinely misunderstood at times. And so we do want to answer those questions when people have them. Uh, and even when we are understood, we may be misrepresented. Somebody may, may purposely misrepresent us. We see that in politics all the time. Uh, you know, when you see... Uh, uh, Republicans talk about Biden and you see um, Democrats talk about uh, Trump you will see people at times on both sides purposely misrepresenting what the other person said on purpose to paint uh, a bad picture of them you know, take them out of context it happens all the time it's, it's one of the most um, frustrating things in politics because it's so hard many times, maybe most of the time to really get to the truth what does that person? What did that person really say? You know, what do they really stand for? Uh, and, and it's hard to figure that out. Well, that's that's what we do. And and when it comes to spiritual things, that's what people will do. And that's what your even your friends may do that with you. So we should answer our critic our critics. Um, but even when doing so, we must be careful not to make the same mistake they are making. So don't don't take those who object to us out of context. We don't want to call them names. We want to say, well, they're just being stupid. You may believe they're being stupid. They may give stupid arguments, but they're not stupid. Uh, we must be careful that we don't misrepresent God uh, or what God says. We want to be clear. Remember, we don't have to make the Word of God sound even tougher because we want to get our point across. Just explain what's, what's being said. Trust God, the Holy Spirit, with all of this. And we need to make sure that as believers that we never question God's righteousness. In the end, God is always righteous. God is always just. His motives are always pure. So in our enthusiasm, we need to be, we need to be careful. And so if there's something that we don't know, if someone raises a question or raises an issue or points out a Bible verse and we're unsure as to how to answer it, then don't answer it. Just explain. Mm, I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question. I'll have to check it out and get back to you. And then make sure you do that. Uh, they, they may not really want you to. They may they may think, wow, I'm, I'm so glad that he's chasing that rabbit because I don't want to deal with this. But you go get the answer and you come back and you talk to him about it. So again, what are some things that people have said that they should not? All right, These are normally Christians who have, uh, not always, but people who say things that will misrepresent what what God has said or who God is. All right, so there's several of them. So let's go through some of them. Number one, uh, you might tell a person, God loves you, so nothing bad will ever happen to you. Uh, you should never say that to a person. That does not give anyone real comfort because what you're giving them is untrue. God does love us. That does not mean bad things will never happen to us. We live in a, in a world that's cursed by sin. Until the Lord returns, we're going to die. All of us, we're going to die. Bad things are going to happen. We're going to suffer uh, sometimes for things we've done and suffer for things we haven't done. And sometimes we're just going to suffer because things are falling apart because of sin. So we need to make sure that we... So even if you're talking to your grandchildren or your children and you're trying to paint a good picture of God, you don't have to change the truth to do that. Kids can handle the truth. So you can tell them that God absolutely loves them. That God is watching over them. But that does not mean that bad things might not still happen. You'll, you'll, you will give them a wrong view of God because something bad is going to happen to them. And so they're going to, most of the time they're going to think that, well, God has lied. And you'll be responsible for that. So, so in our desire to paint God in a good light, that, that is just a bad bad reasoning and, and bad speech on our part. Number two, an individual may say, well, of course I'll get to heaven. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. First of all, I don't know why a believer would ever say that because they know that they're not good and they know that they're never going to get to heaven that way. We're only going to get to heaven because of Christ and what he's done. I expect non-believers to say that. But again, uh, when a non-believer says that, you can ask them, how do you know that? How do you know you'll get to heaven? How do you know you're pretty good? What makes you think that? And talk to them. Make them defend themselves. Uh, 
all you have to do is show them that they've sinned once. And that, that's pretty easy to do. And again, we're comparing that with the truth of the Word of God, and God's already made the declaration that the individual has sinned, because all have sinned. And we'll, we'll cover that again as we continue to work our way through Romans. Sometimes we'll say this. Sometimes uh, someone is sick, and we'll point to a Bible verse, and we'll say, this verse proves that God's going to heal you. Okay. What we know is that God's will is always going to be done. We know for a fact it is not God's will for everyone to be healed. We know that for a fact because hundreds if not thousands of Christians die from cancer and tuberculosis and persecution every day. There's, there's, there's no way that's God's will. And the Bible never says that it's God's will for everyone to be healed. One day, yes. One day in the future, all the effects of sin will be wiped away. Until then, all bets are off. God never contradicts himself. And so we know that even when Jesus was on earth, he did not raise everybody from the dead. In the beginning of his ministry, he did heal everyone who was brought to him. Then after a certain event in his life, he no longer healed everyone. He, he always asked for faith. And those individuals he healed. And so we see this throughout the scripture. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we don't, again, maybe well-intentioned, uh, but we again exaggerate what God has said. Um, sometimes you may say this, well, let's pray right now. Everything will turn out great. God is in control. It's true, God is in control. Where do we get the idea everything will turn out great? And what do you mean it will turn out great? You may mean one thing, but the person you're talking to interprets that as, a, as something completely different. Should you pray right now? Absolutely. Praying with individuals is a great thing. But that doesn't mean everything will turn out great. Um, if I'm talking to, you know, I, I did a lot of work in jail for a long time. So if I'm talking to an inmate uh, who's guilty of several crimes, and, I'm, and I pray with him, why would I tell him everything will turn out great? For him, turning out great means he gets out of prison. That's not going to happen. So I would ask that God would give him the strength to endure what's about to happen to him, to help him serve his sentence as, as a believer, if he's a believer. If he's not a believer, that God would use it in his life to help him to understand his need of Christ. But we need to be careful that, again, we don't misrepresent what God says. It's very easy to do, and well-meaning people can do it as well. And we need to make sure that we stay away from that. Some people, I don't know if anybody really still believes this. Well, maybe they do. They don't say it, but they believe this. God grades on a curve. The better you are, the bigger the blessing. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, but there are some individuals, the only blessings they will get will be in the world to come. The way what we think of being blessed uh, of, as, as blessings, they're not going to get now. There are thousands and thou tens of thousands of Christians who are suffering right now because they are Christians. They are in prisons, they are being tortured, and they are going to be blessed by God one day. They're never going to get out of where they are. They are going to be tortured until they die. It's already happened to thousands already. Thousands through the centuries. God tells us that's going to happen. So we're consistent with the Bible. So we need to make sure that we don't uh, let people know that somehow uh, the better you are, because some of these people are terrific people, that somehow they'll, be, they'll get bigger blessings. That, that just doesn't hold any water. The sixth thing that sometimes people may say is, if God leads you to do something, everything will work out fine. Well, that's, that's not true. God led Stephen to preach the word of God. He was stoned to death. His ministry was very short-lived. So again, what do we mean by everything will work out fine? Now, in one sense, the will of God will be worked out, absolutely. But normally, how do we understand everything will work out fine? Uh, an individual comes to Christ. They say they're having a, um, a bad marriage. Things aren't going well with their spouse. And uh, uh, that individual feels led by God to maybe attend a specific church or whatever it happens to be. Um, why would you say everything is going to work out fine? Their, their spouse may hate them even more. We want, to, we want to look at reality. What is, is what God works with. God can change reality, but he normally doesn't do that. He works within 
human actions and, and the cultures in which we live in. God can change anything, and he, and he does. You know, he changes rulers and uh, all those types of things. But we want to make sure that we understand that if God has led you to a specific, let's say, ministry, it doesn't mean the ministry will be big. It doesn't mean it will be prosperous. It doesn't mean it won't, but it doesn't mean that it will. It doesn't mean that a certain number of people or certain people will get saved. Uh, and so we just need to have a realistic look at that, meaning not that we're trying to be negative, but we want to go by what the Scripture teaches us and everything that's in the Bible. And not only look at verses that promise blessings, look at the whole entirety, the whole counsel of, excuse me, the whole counsel of God. Sometimes individuals may say this, well, when something bad happens, it must mean that there's something bad in my life. Not necessarily. Uh, I remember there was an instance where a man was born blind. So his disciples asked him a question. They said, Master, who sinned? This man or his parents? The prevailing belief that if a child was born blind, it must mean one of those two things. Number one, one or both of the parents had sinned greatly and that God was punishing them uh, for what they had done and therefore their son would be born blind. It would be a burden to the family. They also believed that it was possible for a baby to sin in the womb. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that, but, but there were, in Jewish theology, at, at least back then, during the days of Christ, uh, that was believed. So that's why they asked. Because it has to be that, because remember, he's born blind, who sinned? So he, it wasn't like he was born with sight, sinned, and then he went blind, he was born blind. And so they, they believed that you could be uh, guilty of sin, or sinning in the womb. So Jesus answered, said, neither. He said, this man was born this way so that the works of God might be made manifest. So it doesn't mean necessarily that anything bad is in your life. So again, we have to recognize, sometimes people are complaining, saying, I don't know what I've done wrong. Why is God punishing me? It may not be any of that. It may be that, that God seeks to reveal his glory through how you handle this unfortunate situation or how you handle suffering or how you handle whatever the situation may happen to be. Sometimes a person may say this, we're being spiritual is all that matters because it's all that matters to God. That's not, that's not true. Uh, the Bible says that we are to live in obedience to the governing authorities. There's nothing spiritual about that. He tells children they need to obey their parents. There's nothing spiritual about that. He tells us that we need to go around and do good for others. We need to feed the poor and feed the hungry and care for each other. Those are very physical things. We are to... to to manage the earth and its resources. Those are physical things. So this idea that, you know, only the spiritual matters to God is a form of Gnosticism that was um, already um, uh, decried in, in, in the Bible. It's already been um, spoken against in Scripture. It, it's, it's a horrible belief system, and it's untrue. Some, would, some may think this, well, God is a God of love, and he will overlook what I am doing. Like somehow God is a partially blind great-grandfather and you're his favorite child and he doesn't really see or he ignores the evil that you do. God doesn't do that. God may show us mercy, but it's not because God is choosing to ignore what we have done. So we need to make sure that we never believe that or teach that. Because if you teach that or allow others to believe that's what you are thinking or what you're trying to communicate, you're misleading them from God. Now again, we're not painting God as being this, you know, oligarch who who wants to pound people on the ground. God is love. But that doesn't mean he will overlook what we're doing. God is also a God of justice. And God demands that we live in holiness. The tenth thing that some people say is that God wants us to be happy. So he will always protect us from pain and suffering. Most people who've been a believer for more than a couple of months knows that's untrue. Again, it's not a biblical truth. I'm not going to say that God wants us to be unhappy, but it's not a priority of God for us to be happy. We will be happy and joyful often as Christians, but that doesn't mean that things are always going to go well for us. We will learn to be joyful in trials and, and persecutions. But this idea that God wants us happy so we'll always be protected from pain and suffering is not a truth of Scripture. In fact, God has said categorically that He has appointed some to suffer. He has appointed some to suffer for His namesake, to, to be under persecution. This is a 
Western invention that does not come from the Bible. And so again, it misrepresents God to others. And so we have to be careful of that. Two more. Uh, some people, uh, well, I think I've already said that one. So one more. Uh, if I pray enough, my problem will go away. Well, remember Paul prayed and he asked the Lord to remove the thorn. And the answer God gave him is, my grace is sufficient. What that meant was, I'm not removing the thorn ever. I will give you the grace you need to cope. Paul prayed that several times. God said, my grace is sufficient. So this idea that if we pray enough, your problem will go away, no. It may never go away in this lifetime. That's a biblical truth. What we should be praying for, now there's nothing wrong with praying for a problem to go away or for it to be resolved. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are times that it becomes clear to us that God's not going to say yes to that. So what we should be asking God to do is to give us the strength to endure and wisdom to handle it correctly. That's what we should be praying for. So again, however, just because there's a good chance that we might be misunderstood doesn't mean that we change the message of God. Paul did not do that, and we are not to do that. So some people try to de-emphasize the wrath of God, maybe even minimize it, might even say that God's not really going to send anybody to hell. There are people who say that. Uh, and we just want to focus on the positive aspects. Well, we want to focus on the whole thing. Again, the whole counsel of God. So we don't want to misrepresent God in any way, shape, or form. Let me read you a quote again from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, The gospel comes as a free gift of God, irrespective of what man does. Now, the moment that you say a thing like that, you are liable to provoke somebody into saying, well, if that is so, then it does not matter what I do. But if you say, if you live a good life, if you do not commit certain sins, and if you do good to others and become a church member, you will be a fine Christian. That is encouraging good works. You are telling men to save themselves. That is not the gospel. That's why we have to be careful with how we communicate the gospel. Those are good things. But there is nothing good, no amount of good that we can do that would be so good that it is in a category where God now owes us a favor because of the good that we've done or that God will owe us salvation. That is an impossibility. And so we, we need to remember that. We have sinned against an infinite God. And our sin is infinite in that sense. And as a result of that, we can never do enough good. I heard a great illustration that will help us to recognize how it is that our sin is infinite in that sense. So hopefully I'll remember it because uh, I don't have it written down, but it goes like this. So if you go to a junkyard and you come across a, a car that's there in the junkyard and you take a, a knife and you put a deep gouge in the side of the car, most people would say that that really wasn't that bad. The car is being junked because the car has no value except maybe for parts. So it's, it's a minor a minor infraction. Maybe you'll get in trouble for trespassing in the junkyard when you shouldn't be doing it. Maybe even for trying to destroy private property, but it's not worth much. Let's say then that you go to a used car lot and you do the same thing. Well, that might be a misdemeanor because that car is worth X number of dollars. Uh, but again, the uh, crime you've committed is not that big of a deal in one sense because it's it's an old used car. Let's say you go to a new car lot and it's a $60,000 car and you scratch it in that way. Well, now it's it's a little different story because of the value of the vehicle, because of what you've done to that vehicle causes others to think of what you've done as being worse and it's valued as being worse. If you then go to a, to a store that sells a Lamborghini and you are to mar that Lamborghini, you would be even in more trouble and might even be unable to pay for it to be fixed because that car is worth so much money. Again, it's the same, you're doing the exact same thing you did when you were in the junkyard, but what you've done it against increases the value and, and causes others to, to realize that what you've done is, is worse um, than 
being in the junkyard and scratching up a junked car. You might even go further with that and say that uh, this individual comes across a, a beautiful teenager and he then mars her face with a knife. We say, well, that's even worse because of what he's done, the value of that human life. And now he's destroyed her life, destroyed her future. May have, may have, uh, uh, it may have effects on her for the rest of her life. How do you put a price on that? So again, who the sin is against determines the seriousness of, of the sin. Remember that when we sin, we sin against God. We sin against an infinitely good God. And so therefore our sin can never be made up for by mere human works because they will never have that value to them. We will always be short when it comes to that. So we should never tell an unbeliever to be good or any such thing unless, so that they won't think that we're saying that they're able to save themselves. Uh, we want to make sure that um, they understand that for the believer, good works prove we've been saved by Christ. Those things don't save us. Doing good works doesn't keep me saved. They just actually reveal that I have been saved by God because of that change that takes place within me. So, uh, gosh, we're kind of in an in-between point. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 9 through 18. And maybe we can begin to kind of set the stage a little bit as to what he's doing here with this. Uh, so Paul continues. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this section that we're about to tackle is filled with an enormous amount of theology. Uh, an enormous amount of theology that pertains to man and what motivates us and God's evaluation and judgment of what we do and why we do it. These are very, very difficult things to embrace. I don't think they're hard to understand. It just goes against the grain of what we want to believe. It goes against the grain of what our society and culture wants to believe and what they propagate every day. And so these are some very hard truths. And so again, we need the help of God, even as believers, uh, to accept these. There are some, maybe a growing number of churches that will not teach what is in these verses they will downplay or soft play them or maybe even kind of change the wording a little bit or definitions so that it's not as as hard-hitting as it really is. Uh, but this gives to us a very a clear, unalterable understanding of what man is like and what man is as he stands before God. In verses 10 through 18, four times it says, There is none or no one. Twice it states, no, not one. Then you have phrases such as they have all or all have and they have together or they have where it continues to, to point out to us that this is not just true of certain individuals. This is true of all individuals. All mankind is under this indictment. So what we should see here, once again, is clearly the universality of guilt without exception. No one is excluded from this. This is, I guess you could call it negative truth. This is what, and because of our culture and the way we want to view life, this is why people are just, they don't like this. And, and they don't want to think about it. But, but we need to. It's kind of like, again, if you go, if you have a pain in your chest and you go to the doctor and the doctor either tells you it's cancer or you're having heart failure, you don't want to hear that. But you must hear that. You must hear it and you must embrace it so that you then can embrace the remedy. 
fact, what some people do, maybe it's more now, but what some people do is when they hear that from the doctor, what kind of cancer it is or what kind of heart failure it is, they may then go and do some research on the internet and look at many different websites and go and buy some books that, that will explain in greater detail heart failure or cancer and you know what's being done and, and what to expect and whatnot. So they want to find out more about what's wrong with them. It's not because they're being morbid. It's so they can have a good understanding of the seriousness and the reality of their situation. So when it comes to this, that's why we need to go through this, so that we have a clear grasp. This is not something that we're trying just to be negative and make us feel, oh, we're just lowly worms and we're no good. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about giving us the truth. God wants us to, to be adults. He wants us to, to hear what's, what's wrong with us so we can correct it. You know, it's, it's what we do every day in coaching. You know, I, I coach football. A lot of individuals have been involved in coaching. If you think about it, what is the job? one of the jobs of a coach, one of the main jobs of a coach, uh, is to point out what's wrong with the athlete. Point out what they're doing wrong. Um, dissect how it is they're doing it wrong. And then try to find ways to correct it. But it begins with pointing out that they're wrong. No, no coach says, oh, you've got it perfect. Well, you don't need to, all you can, then all you have to do is raw, raw, let's go get them. And then when they play whatever game it is and they get beat, um, you're going to have a problem. So we need to make sure that we have the proper attitude that we bring to the scriptures so that we will uh, be ready to accept what God says and then be able to absorb the truths and then apply them to our lives and our thinking in a way that honors the Lord. So what we'll do is we will reread that passage again. Uh, when we begin next week, and then we will, in earnest, begin to work our way through it and seek to understand all the various things that Paul is seeking to communicate to us. And I think that you'll find it very, very helpful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your willingness to impart to us the truth, the things that we need to hear. The Father, we may understand our true needs. The Father, we may also then understand the importance of the remedy, the greatness of the remedy and the gift that the remedy is, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, again, that your word would definitely penetrate our minds and our hearts and really challenge and change the way we think about life and the truths that we think about. We pray, Lord, you would guide and direct us throughout this night and throughout this week. And Father, how we look forward to being able to gather together on Sunday, that we may worship you together in spirit and in truth. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.